Americans work too much. I think everyone can identify with that in America. If you have a job, if you're a typical working person in the United States, a typical working adult, if I said to you, do you think you work too many hours during the day, too many hours during the week? I'm guessing you would say yes. And what a lot of people would say to that is, well, that's just how business works. That's just how commerce works. If you're, if you're going to get ahead, if your business is going to be successful, you've got to work hard. Americans work hard. We have a good work ethic. That's why we have the best economy in the world, because we work hard. Everyone else in the world is a bunch of lazy, lazy people. So, yes, of course we need to work hard. And you've got to prove, you know, if you're working your way up the ladder, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to... You got to do this. You got to do that. There's too many things to do. Uh, you know, how am I supposed to work only five, six hours a day? There's there's too many things to do. I, I already work ten hours a day, and I don't even get half the stuff done I'm supposed to get done. How am I supposed to work less than that? Americans are taking less vacations now than they were before. They're working more, and they're more stressed out, and they're more str- and they're more depressed, and they're more anxious. And their marriages are suffering, and their parenting is suffering, and everything is suffering. <laughs> and, and it just seems to be getting worse, particularly in Seattle with all the techs like Amazon and Microsoft and Starbucks and Boeing. And you just hear all day long about how everyone just works all the time. Also, I just read in the news that Sweden is going to try a six-hour workday that they're actually reducing their, their hours. And other European countries actually have, you know, they take the entire month off. And us Americans look at that and say, like, oh, what a bunch of lazy bastards. But I don't think anyone would think Sweden is lazy. I think their economy is doing well. I'm part Swedish, and I say tip of the old cap to you, my Swedish brethren, for uh, addressing work-life balance and trying to improve the lives of people holistically rather than being driven by the almighty dollar. Well, a podcast listener wrote in and said, okay, great, we've heard you rant about this, and although I totally agree with you, what do you do about it when you're working with your clients? When a client comes into you and, and seems to be working too much, what, you know, how do you put all this soapboxing into an actual practice with a client? Well, that's what I want to talk about with you today. Before we get into that, let me introduce the podcast, which is called Psychology in Seattle, and let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda, and I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. Also, I want to mention that I think I'm going to have at least one episode per, per week that is for everyone meaning that non-patrons will have access to at least one episode per week. And then if I do any extra episodes, those will be for patrons only. At this point, I'm making a lot of extra episodes, and it's sort of fun. I get to interact more with everybody, and I get to do you know shorter episodes and sort of topical episodes and more current episodes. And so I don't know what I'm doing with this thing. I'm not. I, I have no rhyme or reason. All I know is I want you to become patrons of the podcast, and I want to have a good time doing this, and I want to be able to dedicate more time to it. And everyone's been great about becoming patrons. And so anyway, if you're not a if you're not a patron, go to patreon.com. 
Also, I'm working on a way to possibly get patron-only episodes to work with a podcast app like on your phone, like Downcast or Pocket Casts, or there's a number of different podcast apps out there. Because right now you have to go to the Patreon page and then listen to, and then listen to the podcast, uh, the exclusive patron-only episodes. Uh, you have to go to the Patreon page and click on a secret YouTube link and listen through YouTube, which is pretty cumbersome when you think about it. But I'm new to all this, so bear with me as I figure it out. And if any of you know any of this stuff, let me know. But I'm currently looking into a way to maybe provide a different feed, a different podcast feed that is for patrons only that you need a password to get into. I don't know. I have no idea. So along these lines, this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, like I said before, you have to become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. Patrons of the podcast get access to exclusive episodes like this one, along with other various benefits and swag. Also, part of your pledge, 20%, goes toward the charities that I've listed on the Patreon page. So again, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com and become a patron of our podcast, our humble little podcast, to get access to this episode. And you do that by going to the Creator Posts tab on Patreon. Okay, patrons, this is the Patreon-only section. Listener David wrote in and said, One of the topics you covered was the influence of poor work-life balance on individuals and family systems. This is a topic close to my heart. I worked at Amazon for 12 years, and I'd like to work with Amazonians as a client base after I graduate. Listener David is going to become a therapist soon. So then he asked the following question. You and I share a dislike of the work-life balance of so many software workers in Seattle. But what do you do in session with these clients? It might not be healthy to work 90 hours a week, but if that's what they want, I feel I'd be lost in counter-transference and, and overly directive if I started guiding them toward what I value. Do you help clarify the impact of this schedule on their presenting problems and let them decide what comes next? I'm very curious. Thanks. So this is a good question, listener David. It, let me just start by saying that if you have clients that want to work for 90 hours a week, then I'm 100% cool with that. If someone comes to me and says, I work a ton, and if I said something like, well, how is that for you? And they said, oh, I love it. I love my job, and I know it's stressful, but it's really what I like to do, and it's not really impacting my life at all. I wouldn't touch it. I'd, you know, I'm, it's not about me, like you said, imposing my values on the clients. That That's that's terrible. That's paternalistic. That's um, abuse of power. It's just silly. Most clients would run away from a therapist that imposed their will and their values on a on a client. At least I hope they would run away from a therapist like that. But most people who work more than 40 or 50 hours per week would love to cut back. So it's not, you know, if you have someone who comes in working 90 hours, it's not likely that they're going to say, oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> because it's really not feasibly healthy for most people to work that much to even work I think more than 40 hours a week to have a healthy life I don't I actually do not I mean especially if you have kids if you have kids and you're working 40 hours a week I don't think it's physically possible to actually live a healthy life because if you think about it if you're working 40 hours a week you you get up you got chores to do you got to get your kids ready you've you've got to commute and in Seattle that's going to be like an hour 
and then you get to work and you got eight hours and, and there's usually a half an hour in there of, of a break or a lunch or something. So you're really at work for like eight or nine hours. And then you commute home and you've got to cook dinner and, and then you go to bed. And then the weekend comes and you're like, oh, I have free time. Okay, now it's time to mow the lawn. It's time to go to the grocery store. It's time to do this and do that. And and you can do that lifestyle for, I've seen people do that lifestyle essentially for their entire lives. And what gets left out is life (laughs) a lot of times. Not for everybody, but what gets left out are things like sex or going on a hike or having a meaningful exchange with somebody, having a conversation, cuddling, cuddling when you're not tired, having sex when you're not tired, um, being able to tend to your health, exercise, eating right, eating healthy, thinking about yourself, thinking about others. So I actually think that working 40 hours a week and commuting in particular is is re- it's for the typical worker i think it's really hard to have a happy life given that lifestyle it's not impossible but but i i think they're a little incompatible particularly if you're working 60 hours a week i think it's virtually impossible so in response to listener david yes therapy is never about telling people what to do it's about helping people get what they want it's about helping them get where they want to go, not what you want for them. So, for example, if I was working with someone who works at Amazon and they were stressed and they weren't getting much sleep and they weren't exercising and their relationship was suffering, I might ask, how many hours do you work? How, how much work do you do at home? If it seems that their work schedule makes it impossible to have a happy life, then I will go on a rant about workers' rights and how our culture has favored corporations over workers, and every worker has the right to evaluate their workload and push back if necessary, and no one will do that for them, so they have to do it for themselves, and some of the coworkers will judge them for pushing back on their, you know, if you start, if you start reducing your hours, some of your coworkers, are, including your boss, will actually react negatively to that. But then in my rant to this client, I would ask, what's more important, pleasing your coworkers and your boss or having a happy, meaningful, balanced life? So I, would, I just pose that to people. I don't, and it's me inserting my values, but I'm not forcing the, the client to do anything. If the client comes back to me and says, yeah, I don't know, I'm pretty cool with my work. I don't think that's an issue or I really can't change that right now. It's not possible for me to change it. Then I'm not going to say, you know, come on, you pussy, you got to, I'm not going to, it's, I'll just, I just let go of it. A big part of being a therapist, this is, I've never really said it this way. A big part of being a therapist is knowing when to let go of things. A lot of novice therapists that I work with do not let go of things. Uh, they will get really fixated on a particular path. And what I try to help novice therapists with is understanding that there are many paths towards wellness and there are many paths towards getting clients what they want. And the one path that you are fixated on, if, if the client isn't on board, then you got to let it go and, and trust that there are other paths that you will discover with the client. But when I go on this rant with my clients, 
100% of the time, my clients will light up. They suddenly feel empowered to have the life that they want. And why is that? Because no one is talking about this in, in my city anyway. And I don't hear people talking about this in my culture. And of course, I'm not tapped into every single media source. But when I say this to my clients, they look at me like, yeah, that makes total sense. It, if I don't advocate for myself, then no one will. And at my, at my you know, the business I work at, the, the culture is such that if you even talk about work-life balance, you, you get a little, you get frowned upon. I mean, I, I should say, actually, let, let me back up and say that uh, businesses like Amazon will actually talk about work-life balance. There will be a discussion about that at times. But what I find is that what will happen is they give it lip service, essentially. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like you can imagine a, a police force that has a particularly racist culture uh, that, is, that has infected it. You could imagine them having a cultural sensitivity training in which everyone has to go through the motions and talk about how they should be colorblind or that they shouldn't treat black people worse than white people. You can imagine you know, leaders saying, now, people, we got to make sure that we're balanced, da-da-da-da-da. But as soon as the police officers leave the room, they just go right back to their racist practices. This is not to say that all cops are racist, because that is absolutely not true. And not all precincts have, or, you know, I don't even know what you call group precincts, <laughs> groups of police officers. Uh, not all groups of, groups of police officers have big problems with racism. But I think you get my meaning. There's a lot of businesses that will talk about work-life balance. I mean, if you went to your boss and said, is it okay if I have work-life balance? Most of your bosses would say, yeah, sure, absolutely. You should absolutely spend time with your family. What, what else is the boss going to say? But what the culture will do to people, if the system is set up to punish people that try to pull back on their hours, and if the system rewards people that put in a lot of overtime without asking for reimbursement, then the proof's in the pudding, right? Now, just because a client lights up and says, oh my God, yeah, let's talk about this. I, I, you know, a major portion of my problems stem from the fact that I don't have any time to do anything and I feel tired and sad all the time and I need a more meaningful life. I want to do things that I want to do. And so, yeah, that, that can be an easy conversation to have with people, but it takes time. You know, someone can't just simply say, okay, I'm going to just have work balance now. Thank you so much for pointing that out to me, therapist. Let me give you a for instance. I once worked with a woman, and as a, as a caveat to this, I, I remember that whenever I present clients, I mask their identity in various ways. So just know that. So I once worked with a woman for many years on this very issue of work-life balance. And over time, she slowly asserted her rights as a worker. But each step was very difficult for her because she felt guilty uh, with every single step. And she felt overindulgent, overindulgent with every single step. Every single time she asserted her rights as a worker and tried to establish greater balance between work and life, there was pushback uh, mainly from within her. There was, uh, there was also pushback from the corporation. 
Absolutely. There was pushback from the corporation. They did all sorts of weird things to her. Even her union wasn't very supportive, which would might surprise some people. Right, you know, it's like, well, if you're in a, if you're in a union, just go to your union, and your union will help you. Not always. Sometimes the union is just as abusive to their workers as the corporation is. So, anyway, for instance, one thing that we collaboratively decided would be good for her well-being was for her to take a lunch break, for her to not eat lunch at her desk, to actually walk away from her desk get away from work, get away from the people that were demanding things of her and just eat a lunch and relax and just chill, right? She she really needed that and she never had that. And although officially she was supposed to take it, unofficially people would subtly punish her for taking it. So we collaboratively decided that taking a lunch break is what she wanted to do. But just telling people, just telling her that she has the right to do that is often not enough. And it wasn't enough in this situation. And so every step of the way over years with this client, I had to, I had to compassionately assess each barrier to why it was hard for her to assert that. What got her into this job? A lot. Of, some people with certain per- personalities are particularly prone to this. And I think women are more prone to this than men, but men are absolutely prone to it as well. But women are socialized to serve, and men are not socialized to serve as much as women are. I guess for a different reason, men probably have problems with work-life balance. Men are socialized to work hard (laughs) and to provide. So I guess if you make them terrified of losing their job, then men are going to work really hard. So probably, But anyway, with this woman, one of her barriers was that she was socialized not only by culture but also by her family to put herself aside, to only be concerned with what everyone else wants for her, and to, to, to really deny and devalue her own needs. Also, she was socialized and also by, she was socialized by society, by a sexist society, and she was also given a lot of messages by people around her that she wasn't a very good person and that she wasn't a very good worker, even though she was a fantastic, organized, responsive, intelligent worker, even though she had all these skills that I could clearly tell were there, she really devalued herself. And so as a result, she thought, well, if I push back, if I assert myself, they're going to fire me and I'll never get hired by anybody. And so that took a long time. We had to go back into her family of origin. We had to talk a lot of work through those feelings. I had to provide a lot of corrective experiences and help her sift through all that stuff. And that took a long time. So in order for her to assert her, her needs, especially in the face of talking to her boss, she needed to shed some of these insecurities and some of these inner shames that she had. And over time, she was able to take more breaks. She was able to tell people to screw off when they asked her to do too much. They would tell her to do demeaning things in the office. They would ask her to to make coffee for everybody when that wasn't in her job description. Or they would ask her to fax something when that wasn't in her job description. And, and in the beginning, she would just do it because it was her role in life with everybody to please everybody. But she didn't like it deep down. If she loved it, if she loved being a pleaser, if she really, truly 
loved it and it provided meaning to her life, then great. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing something nice for somebody that wants something. You know, if someone wants you to fax something and you take pleasure in doing that for them, then great. But it, that wasn't the case for her. Her job had nothing to do with these tasks. And every time someone asked her to do it, it would, it would really, it would devalue, she felt devalued and her self-esteem would drop. And she didn't feel like she could fight back because it was, it wasn't in her nature or her, her regular routine to actually even, even know that it was okay for her to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And the reason why she found herself in a job where everyone was treating her this way isn't because all jobs are like this, but she, because she came from a certain personality of being, of being a pleaser and allowing herself to be a doormat, then people recognized her as a, as a very good candidate for this job because they wanted a doormat to work in that position so they could walk on that person, regardless of who it was. And so when she interviewed for the job, she seemed like a good doormat, and so they hired her. Now, I'm simplifying things, of course, and I'm speculating quite a bit, but it seemed to me that that was the case. And so for her to dig herself out of that hole, she had to completely change the culture of the office regarding what that position even meant. Most people just thought, well, isn't, isn't that person basically just our gopher? And that wasn't her role. And that wasn't why she wanted to work in that position. So she had to really push back on that. And there was a lot of resistance in the system. There are a million of other reasons as to why it might be difficult for clients to make this change. Maybe they hate their family life, so they escape to their work. So maybe they need help in the family life, so they will have motivation to assert their workers' rights. As I said before, maybe they're terrified of losing their job, and we need to help them problem-solve that, or we need to help them with their self-esteem. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe they buy a, a too big of a house, and they're too dependent on their job to pay off their mortgage. There's not a lot as a therapist I'm going to be able to do to help that. But actually, I did work with a client for a long time about that. When the economy took a downturn and everyone's mortgages became a big problem because their houses were, were like you know a quarter the value that they were the previous year, I did work with a, a couple for a long time about this issue, and it's not as if I'm going to problem solve that, but it, it is a conversation, an exploration to have with clients because it sometimes has to do with sort of the meaning of life for people. Is the meaning of life to have a big house? Is the meaning of life to not be bankrupt? <laughs> you know, Because some people, they're their sort of unspoken meaning of life is to appear like a rich person, even though they would never say that out loud. But they want to appear like a upper-middle-class person. They want the nice house. They don't want to go into bankrupt because they, they don't want to go into bankruptcy because that's shameful. They don't want to sell their house and move into a small rental because that's shameful. And so they get stuck in these situations and of course, again, as a therapist, I'm not going to say to them, you need to get out of this house and move into a home that is more uh, conducive with your income. I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to explore, you know, what's the meaning of life? What, what is it that you value? 
How do you want to live it your life? Well, one question that I often ask clients, uh, because I often ask this of myself, is, okay, you're 90 years old. You, you're lucky that you live that long, and you're looking back on your life. What do you want to see? This question is such a great question in therapy to ask, I think, because people really rework their current priorities when they have that viewpoint. You know, if you're currently worried about, oh, crap, you know, my house doesn't look as cool as other houses do on the block, or, oh, crap, I have a used car, and I should have an Audi like the guy in the cubicle next to me. He has an Audi, and I need an Audi. And then I say to the, to this person, okay, you're 90, let's skip forward, you're 90 years old. What do you want to look back on? Nobody says, I want to look back on a life in which I had an Audi. <laughs> or I want to look back on a life in which my house was just as good, if not better, than the, house, than the houses of other people on my block. Nobody says that. And so that should really tell us something about what we are doing to ourselves. We are telling ourselves now that we need bigger houses, fancier things, fancier cars, fancier jewelry. I mean, think about wedding rings for crying out loud. I mean, it's, I don't know the research on this, but it's anecdotally, no matter who you are in American society, if you don't spend, I don't know, 15, 20 grand, 10 to 20 grand on a, on a rock, then you're really not a good guy. And I just, cons- I just think, then that's just one example. I mean, there's so many other examples. You know, I gave up the car example. Your car is such a status symbol, you know? And the house and the yard and the way things look and what else? How many trips you go on and the sorts of trips you go on. What are we doing to ourselves? <laughs> Have we lost our way? When we look ourselves in the mirror, how do we not see through the bullshit and say to ourselves, well, I only, I'm only going to live once on this planet. What am I doing with myself? And so I try to have these conversations with my clients because often what, what people will, what I find is that, and this could, again, could take years of conversations and exploration because there's lots of twists and turns and barriers and should-haves and could-haves and shames involved in all sorts of things in people's psyches. But, but what I find is that when people connect in their soul or in their psyche or in their personhood with what they truly want and what they truly find meaningful, then we're in the zone. Then we're heading towards wellness. Then they're congruent with themselves. And if that means getting an Audi, then great. But it doesn't usually mean that. And I don't mean to pick on Audis. <laughs> it just seems to be the, the current thing. Tesla, there's a Tesla dealership a few blocks away from here. Uh, everyone wants a Tesla. In the 80s, it was BMWs, and then it was Mercedes. And I, I just was having a conversation with a client recently about this. And I just flat out asked her, and I said, I know this question is going to sound funny, but... What's the meaning of your life? Why are you here? And she looked at me and was like, well, what do you mean? And we had this long conversation about why she was here. What is she put on this earth to do? Does she believe in God? Does God have a purpose for her? 
do her ancestors see her right now? What do her ancestors want to see in her? What does she want to see in her? When she's 90 and she looks back, and she looks back, what does she want to see? What does that mean for her today? How does that set her priorities? Now, some of you out there might be thinking, oh, so basically we're supposed to live each day like it's the last day of our life, or I'm just supposed to throw away my job and, and become a hippie and homeless and, and be spontaneous and, and not work because I don't want to work. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is we all have to work because if we don't, we can't pay our bills. And bills put food in our mouth and clothes on our back. And maybe fancy things occasionally are nice. Maybe every once in a while you want a fancy thing. But for a lot of people, a lot of clients, when I talk about this with them, they're basically blindly walking through life following goals that were told to them by society. Society has set forth capitalism, basically has set forth a goal for them. And they are now chasing it, thinking that it will make them happy. And they're always saying, okay, the next thing will get me happiness. If I just get a bigger house, if I just get a nicer car, if I just get on top of my student loan debt, if I just get that one investment, if I just get my retirement, none of that will make you happy. And I'm not saying that out of my own experience only. I'm telling you that from research. None of that shit makes you happy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if that made people happy, then psychologists and therapists and counselors, that's all we would, we would be doing, right? would be like, save your money, invest it in the future, don't come to therapy. <laughs> and it, it doesn't surprise me that people have problems with work life and about the meaning of life and being congruent with their life goals. It doesn't surprise me because when do people talk about this? For most people in my anecdotal experience, when I ask them, what is the meaning of your life? Not, you know, once I get across to them what I'm truly asking, they've never even thought about it before. So many people that I talk to have never even thought, what am I going to do with my time here on this planet? What am I here to do? When I am old and I look back on my life, what do I want to see? I think it's because when we're young, we always have these little goals that are set out right in front of us, you know, get to, get to the next grade or get to summer or get to the weekend or get this assignment done or get, get to the next semester. Okay. Get, okay. Now you got to go to college. Okay. Now you got to graduate from college. Okay. Now you got to get an internship. Okay. Now you got to get the entry level job. Okay. Now you got to get, it just, it just keeps going on. It never ends. And I think there's this, there's this mentality of, well, eventually I'll arrive. And to some of you, I know I'm speaking to the choir, you know, like listener David here, you know, he totally understands. So I don't want to act like I'm the only one who's ever said this before, because I'm certainly not. There's a lot of people that talk about this, but I don't think enough. And I think it's up to us therapists sometimes when people walk into our offices that have seemingly have this as a factor, as a part of the, the thorn in their side, depending on their presenting problem, then we as counselors, I think, and we as therapists, and I think it's a social justice issue, really. It's workers against corporations. We have a duty to help people understand that. You know, if you were talking with uh, an African-American woman 
And she just told you story after story about how she was being treated unfairly. You might say, do you think this might have to do something with racism? I think this might have to do, is it possible this is race or sexism or both or something? That's your job. You're supposed to raise those questions so that someone understands what's happening to them and that you can advocate for them. Now, you're not going to go to their work and tell people to stop being sexist and racist, but you need to normalize for people and you need to advocate for them. You need to bolster their power by telling them, look, it's your right. You can fight back on this. Da, 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 da. Anyway, it's long story, but it's the same with someone that's being beaten down by a corporation or an organization for working too much. It's the same thing. You know, there's people in power that, that have money and can dispense jobs and take away jobs. Those people are privileged and the workers are under underprivileged. And when they come into our office and they're being oppressed, then it's a social justice issue to at least raise it, raise the question, and to start advocating for their rights as a human being on this planet. So maybe the Swedes have it right. Again, my Swedish brethren, I tip the hat to you. I've never said that phrase, by the way. I tip the hat to you. I said that earlier, and I regret it now. I regret saying it again. But uh, what are you going to do? It's, it's, it's been recorded, Kirk. That ship has sailed. The Internet has now heard you say that ridiculous thing. And you're just going to have to live with that. And you're going to have to not shame yourself. You're going to have to turn that around in your mind and say, you know what? You, you live for the moment. And sometimes when you live in the moment, you say stupid shit like tip of the old, the old hat. And that's cool. If, if people are listening to this, they're patrons. So they must appreciate at least something about you. And you need to tell yourself, you're a good person. And gosh darn it, people like you. People like you, Kirk. And stop beating yourself up. Don't, don't lie awake at night trying to fall asleep, ruminating on the fact that you said tip of the old hat. Don't do that. That, that would be unproductive. Because everyone needs sleep. Everyone knows you need sleep. And don't let your you know, silly cliches of the day plague your sleep so that you don't wake up tomorrow and become a good therapist. You, you got to get sleep to be a good therapist. Don't let the tip of the hat thing ruin your chances of being a good therapist tomorrow because it's meaningful to me and congruent in my life that I am a good therapist and I try to help people. That is the question that I posed to myself when I was 25 and caught in traffic and I was a worker and I was on 520, the highway here in Seattle and Bellevue. And I asked myself, when I'm 90 and I look back, what do I want to see? And I said, I want to be helping people. I, I want to be trying to help people. I don't know if I can help people, but I want to, I want to help people like on the ground level. I don't want to be doing stuff in the ivory tower. I want to be right there next to people trying to help them. And I don't know what that is. And I went through a lump, number of different jobs and somehow a therapist came to mind and I became a therapist. And so I'm not going to let the fact that I said tip of the hat ruin that life goal because why, why should it? You know, that's just, that's just my vow to myself. And patrons out there, hold me to it. Don't let me ruin my life with that. Oh, that was a long, long discussion about tip of the hat. Tip of the hat to you. Who says that? So silly. 
All right. So thank you, listener David, for writing in and asking about work-life balance and how to help clients with that. Let me talk about some some listener emails here. But before I do that, let me tell you about a dream I had last night. I had a dream that I was hanging out with the police, the band, the police, and we were watching a concert and it was a a cover band. They were playing a, a spoof, silly version of uh, that one police song, Walking on the Moon. Walking on the Moon. You know that song? Anyway. And I was sitting right in between Stuart Copeland and the guitarist, of whom I don't know his name, because he isn't as great as the drummer. And I'm sitting in between those two guys, and then Sting comes over and sits on the guitarist's lap, and and Sting is just giddy because he's so he's just so entertained by this band playing a spoof version of Walking on the Moon. And then I tu- I turned to the drummer Stuart Copeland, whom I have a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, because uh, I just love the drums. In fact, um, I I have this like rigged. Uh, I don't know what you call it, like a specialized drum set to play rock band with on the Xbox, you know? It's like a an actual electronic drum set that's like rigged to... I had to like send away for this thing in Germany or something. Anyway, it's hard to explain. But anyway, I love playing drums. And I love playing to rock band. It's hard to play... If you're a drummer out there, it's hard to just play drums by yourself. Like if you're a guitarist, like... I'm a guitarist too. Like I can pick up my guitar and just play my guitar. That's just an entertaining thing. But if you're a drummer, typically the drummers I know, and as a super sucky drummer myself, I can attest to this as well. Like if you just sit down at drums and start playing drums, it's not very entertaining. You have to be playing with musicians. And so Rock Band, the video game, is a perfect way to do that because if you're, if you're playing drums, you're playing along with you know these songs that you know and love. Well, anyway, some of my favorite songs to play on Rock Band are the Police songs, and they're actually really complicated sometimes and really interesting. But anyway, I've always really loved the the band uh, Police, and particularly I, I listen to I listen to mainly reason why I listen to the Police is the drums that I always have. Anyway, the point is, I turn to Stuart Copeland, the drummer, and I say, Andy Copeland, you're a you're a genius. And because I'm really like so starstruck that I forgot his first name and I called him Andrew, not Andy. I called him Andrew Copeland. And then, and he's like, oh, okay, that's cool. And he's like, just kind of just playing it cool. And then like, I'm sort of watching them. And then five minutes later, it occurs to me, oh my God, I called him Andrew Copeland. I didn't even call him his real name. And then I, I kind of shyly said, um, I, I meant Stuart. <laughs> And it didn't come out very well. And Stuart kind of looked at me like, huh? Like he probably forgot or didn't even hear that I called him the wrong name. And then, and I'm looking at him like, oh my God, this is so dumb. And, uh, and that's my story about my dream. Anyway, okay. So uh, right now you're probably saying, tip of the hat to you, Kirk, for saying a dream to thousands of people. Uh, that takes a lot of bravery to do something so silly. All right. Uh, patron Natalie says, I've been listening to your podcast for over a year now and wanted to let you know that I appreciate your unbiased perspective on many topics or your attempts to be unbiased anyway. 
I think it's very important to be objective on topics that can be very politically charged. You did a great job on presenting your professional opinion along with the facts when discussing the how to prevent mass shootings episode. I was very surprised when you said that you will not be talking about the popular opinion of a ban on firearms. I am a gun owner, and I thought you provided great insight and focus on the mental health issues instead of the political aspect. Patron Natalie is becoming a therapist. I mean, as I said in that episode on how to prevent mass shootings, if I had it my way, I would get rid of all guns everywhere. There would be no arms for anyone on the entire planet. In fact, I fantasize about that sometimes. There's a Simpson episode about that, I think, where someone takes over the world with a slingshot or something. But anyway, so politically, you know, I would say, great, get rid of guns. But but the reality is, is that there are a lot of people that are just not going to budge on that in our in our country. And instead of just continuing to hammer on that issue and getting discouraged and you know just yelling at the republicans and the nra and gun owners to me i i just think let's try to listen to both sides i i find that this this political position that so many people seem to take which is they basically just pick a team whether it's republican or democrat and they say okay this is my team And whatever my team says, I am 100% for. And whatever the other team says, I'm going to say I'm not for. And I'm going to hate the other team, and I'm going to love my team. Patron Linden wrote in and said, My heart kind of sunk on hearing the the latest podcast, the one about uh, preventing mass shootings. It was a good episode. The reason I felt icky is because I have touched on some of that alpha crap in a few emails, and I think it is really, really unhealthy and, and destructive. Hearing that this latest shooting was connected to this stuff was kind of depressing. So Patron Linden is referring to, Patron Linden wrote in and actually, I think he was the one that initiated me talking about the whole alpha male thing. And then days later, this whole uh, shooting in Oregon happened, which was connected to the, the alpha beta male sort of controversy or movement or underground culture. I don't even know what you want to call it. Patreon Linden goes on to say, as for pulling the episode down on the killer from a year ago in California, because I posed a question in the episode. I was like, should I take that down? Because am I glorifying that person's name? Because that's my whole thing now is like, we need to stop doing that. I've, I've come recently to become convinced of that, that, you know, some people have been saying that for a while and I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Should I take the episode down, which I actually name the murderer from a year ago in California? So patron Linden says, as for pulling that episode down, I don't know. That episode had a, had a nice devil's advocate balance to it. That is different from a lot of the commentary that you find in other areas. Also, I would never have known of the psych bed shortage. That's true in the United States. So he says, totally understand the reason for pulling it. However, you might do more good than harm leaving it up. Well, that's good input. I'm still obviously considering pulling it down. So if other people have opinions, let me know. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. It's so great to have all the patrons. Uh, People are becoming patrons. How many do we have so far? We have 43. And the new people are... Uh, Natalie and Melanie and Alexander and Peter and Rose and Joseph and Elvin and David and Brian and Laura and Anna and Karen and Grant and Aaron and Alessandro and Zoe and Bianca and Lois and Ethan. 
everyone is so great. And I just, it's just so great. I just want to make this a big family. Like I said before, we're hoping for a lot more patrons to the podcast and, you know, let's have live events and let's do these exclusive episodes and let's figure out a way that to get it to you more conveniently and let's, let's do more emails and da da da. It's going to be great. Can you tell it's late at night? It's actually 1230 in the morning for me right now. And I'm a little punchy. A little weird right now. <laughs> All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself, and let me go to bed. Okay, bye. Bye.